It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's Live in the Bream with host of Fox News at Night, Shannon Bream. Joining us on Living the Bream this week is one of my colleagues that you probably don't know everything about him. I don't know everything about him, but we're going to find out in the next 20 minutes every detail of his life. He is currently the co-anchor of America Reports. He's covered the White House. He's traveled the world. He's done it all. He's even in a Hall of Fame. The one and only John Roberts. Welcome. Well, thank goodness it's an in-depth look at my life because that'll take us all of about two and a half minutes. <laughs> so, so great to have you um, with us. Um, we have been colleagues for a long time at Fox. Occasionally, yeah. we get to work together, which is always fun for me. Um, but you've had a long and winding road, as we all do in this business. Tell me a little bit about your beginnings in Canada, how you ended up in the U.S. Was this something that you had always kind of dreamed of or thought of, or is this just a bunch of happy, you know, circumstances that led you here? I'll tell you the, the long and winding road. It's a, it's a veritable Beatlemania. Uh, I guess <laughs> I was, I was, I was in college and my original career path, my education path was medicine. I wanted to be a doctor. I was thinking I would like to be a pediatric transplant surgeon. Wow. I don't know why I picked that, but <laughs> that's, that's what I was thinking uh, immediately. And when I went to college, there was a radio station on campus. Uh, TV wasn't really a big thing in terms of, you know, the number of outlets that we have now where anybody can put up a TV channel anywhere. Uh, It was a big, very much involved process. So radio stations were flourishing on college campuses. And I started uh, hanging out at the uh, college uh, radio station after my labs and found myself spending as much time there as I did in biology and physics and chemistry and enjoying it more. <laughs> so mm. I thought to myself, you know, uh, if this medicine thing uh, doesn't work out or if maybe I take you know, a gap year or whatever, let me explore this idea of going into broadcasting. And if I can make it work, great. And if I don't, I, I, I went basically to college when I was 16 years old. So I figured mm-hmm. I had a couple of years uh, that I could give it a whirl. And if it didn't work out, I could come back to school and continue the track to medicine. And it, it worked out better than I ever hoped it possibly could. have. So I thought, oh, you know what, maybe this is the better career track for me. Of course, now looking back on it, you know, every day I kick myself for not becoming a pediatric transplant surgeon. <laughs> well, you're saving lives every day with the news that you deliver. It's important for people, right, John? <laughs> well, that's a good way to look at it, Jim. <laughs> I do tell people like, okay, we are not out here saving your lives. We're doing what we hope is an important service and serving our viewers in particular and, and getting them accurate, quick information. Um, and I, there's a different sense of obligation in that. But yeah, with medicine, you must have had, you're not somebody who's um, turned off by the side of blood and guts. Um, that's the main reason that most of us don't think we could ever get there. Um, but you must have had some kind of fascination or affinity for that kind of thing. I, I did. I was always interested in biology. It was always my best subject at school. Math, unfortunately, was not a good subject, which <laughs> would have been challenging uh, getting into medical school. But I, I, I've always just been fascinated with the world around me in terms of biology and how the human body works and and disease and uh 
just, you know, when people come up to me and they say, oh, I'm not feeling well, I go into instant diagnosis mode. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, And I've actually found myself on a couple of occasions diagnosing myself where other uh, physicians have not been able to. For example, a 2018 trip that we made with Donald Trump, where we went to Belgium and then England, Theresa May at Checkers, ended up in Helsinki uh, with Vladimir Putin. I was feeling these weird uh, pains in my forearms and hands. Went to three doctors who said, well, we don't know what it is, but it's not your heart. And I said, you know, it feels like it's cardiac involvement. So I, I came back and got in with a great doctor, Lowell Sattler at Washington Hospital Center, who said, you know, we should probably do with catheterization just to figure out what's going on here. And there was a 90% blockage in my left oh my anterior goodness. descending uh, artery, which I needed a stent for. So yeah, I've always had a knack for kind of feeling how the body is working mm-hmm. and uh, coming up with a diagnosis that sometimes other doctors weren't able to. And in this case, that might've saved my life. I mean, so, absolutely. It's <laughs> a good thing. Yeah. And you, your intuition um, and your interest in this area, I'm sure was helpful because um, you think about it. I, I have often shared my own medical stories too. Like you really have to be your own best advocate. You know, your you body, do. and you know, when something's not right. And we have great respect for doctors who, my goodness, spend years studying and training and um, working incredible, crazy hours as residents and shifts, you know, so they can help us, but they too are human. Like we are, and it's important to trust your gut and really mm-hmm. Follow up. On they that. also they also see an awful lot of patients as well, and and you know I would imagine that ninety five percent of the time it, it turns out to be nothing, but it's mm-hmm. that five percent that you really have to watch out for. Makes all the difference. Okay, so with your interest in medicine, the last couple of years we've all had to <laughs> read medical Ooh. studies, um, really learn a lot of new terminology, and um, ha- having to take on a little bit of a, a scientific mind. Um, we've all interviewed dozens and dozens and dozens of doctors. Um, has there been some part of you that's been able to tap into that as we've been covering this pandemic the last couple of years? Oh, definitely. And, and when I was at CBS back in the, the late 1990s, I was the chief medical correspondent as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, I've, you know, I've got a background in medical reporting, uh, know what questions to ask, uh, have a pretty good understanding of the science. But, but COVID has been this uh, elusive, almost phantom-like uh, virus that manifests itself in so many different ways that we don't fully understand yet. We also don't fully understand as well what the overall effects, and I know that this is a very controversial topic, what the overall effects of vaccinations and boosters are. Because some of these vaccines are turning your body into a spike protein factory. Mm -hmm. And does that have ancillary effects on your immune system? There have been reports of myocarditis, pericarditis, other inflammatory processes associated with them. So I, I think that the full story of COVID has yet to be told and probably won't be told for years, if not decades to come, as we look back on on all of this evidence that we are compiling. Yeah, you're so right. I was reading something today that talked about the spike proteins and what the original vaccine triggers your body to defend against is different than obviously what we see with the variants now and just trying to Mm -hmm. make sense and understand that it's been fascinating. But for me, that's one of the things I love about this job. I wonder about you too. It's that I always tell young people, you won't be bored. I mean, I feel like every day I'm diving into a new subject. I'm learning something new about geography or medicine or politics. Um, There's always so much material to synthesize, but you're always learning. That's the great thing about journalism. Mm-hmm. And uh, I recall when I when I first went to, 
the White House to be a correspondent in 1999. Uh, people said, what's it like working at the White House? You've got so many things to deal with. I said, you have to become a semi-expert in literally everything right. that moves around the world. Because when you're at the White House, as you know, Shannon, it's a nexus for everything that happens around the globe. And so you have to be able to have a facile working knowledge of so many different things so that when you go out there on the North Lawn, and it's the same thing when you're anchoring a program on Fox as well, you have to be able to talk with facility about myriad different things, many of which you never thought that you would ever have to have right. any degree of expertise or knowledge in. Right. So if, if you're a curious person, if you like digging, you like asking questions, if you're the kid who drives everybody crazy, why? But why? But why? <laughs> um, then maybe you shouldn't be in journalism because um, if you have that curiosity about life and want to keep asking and learning, it's a great job um, and it can take you around the world. Um, you can do all kinds of things with it. Um, I don't know if I've told you this story before. I probably have, but stop me if I have. I was in my very first job. I had been an attorney for a while and I got my first job in journalism in Tampa, Florida at WFTS, the local station there. I had gone there as an intern. Um, I was almost 30. So I had my midlife crisis early and I was super excited to get to do you know whatever I could. I was an intern, then mm -hmm. I worked the prompter, then they hired me to you know produce cut-ins and I was still you know going out with people and trying to do whatever I could to learn the business. And at one point they let me occasionally start going out to do stories. That was where I got my first start. And on one of those stories, my producer and I, uh, I mean, my cameraman, she was actually a camera woman and I, we had many adventures together. We were sent over to the airport in Tampa because Al Gore was making a stop there as towards the tail end of his presidential run in 2000. And we got there and we just have our little camera and a tripod, but we walk up and all of the networks are set up. And so they've got fancy lights and little you know, like mini risers for people to stand on and stuff. And I went and um, my photographer and I just slink over the little local crew and we set up our little thing and we're waiting for him to land and do the whole thing. And I looked over and who was standing next to me? But the big fancy network correspondent, John Roberts. And I said to myself, oh my goodness, that is, he is the real deal. And here I am, well, this local reporter standing next to him. Like, I was like, Bream, take notes, watch what this guy's doing. He's the real deal. Well, it just goes to show that initial impressions can often be wrong, right? <laughs> Believe <laughs> because, me, I was very impressed, and my impression was not wrong. Well, I'll tell you, the fact that you were a lawyer gives you a leg up in terms of overall life experience to what I had. Well, <laughs> what for I, 2000, I, we all needed the legal stuff. But what you what you say is, is interesting in terms of you were an attorney. I wanted to go into medicine. Mm -hmm. Both of those are fields where you're very inquisitive. And you're very curious about life and what's going on. Uh, medicine, you do it in terms of physiology and disease progression. An attorney, you do it in terms of knowing what questions to ask, knowing the law, knowing how the world around you works, knowing how people should or should not behave, uh, and knowing what's right and what's wrong. So they're, they're both lines of inquiry that mm -hmm. you and I grew up in, uh, albeit different. But they, they give us both, a, I think, a, um, a good foundation for, for being inquisitive. And mm -hmm. to try to get to the heart of an answer, you don't just take the first answer that comes out and say, OK, well, what about this? And then if they give you another answer, well, well, what about this aspect of it as well? You've got to keep probing because many times the first answer you get is not the comprehensive one. Mm -hmm. Especially when we're constantly in, in D.C. having to get people off their talking points, which is, I think, exactly. one of the more frustrating things that we do when we try to interview people and 
they're like, well, I've got A, B, and C, and that's what I'm going to talk about. And to really push them so you can have a real conversation is one of the challenges. And I think sometimes you got to disarm people with um, maybe maybe a a personal question or maybe an angle they didn't see coming. Not a gotcha question, but just something to, to get them to where they're having a more genuine conversation with you and not just something off of a piece of paper that they want to stick to and they don't want to deviate from because, you know, if we're going to get good information, we need to dig. Which really then comes back to 2000 and Al Gore because Al Gore was almost impossible to knock off his talking points. Every once in a while we would get him, but by and large, oh God, interviewing him was so frustrating because you would ask him a question, he'd completely ignore the question and just give you the talking point. Then you try to knock him off the talking point and he'd just come right back around to the talking point again. Right. I, we ha- I, I spent 18 months of my life doing that. <laughs> well, where, we hate those disciplined, right. You're not getting it back, but we hate those disciplined politicians, you know, which leads me to like, uh, talk about a contrast in studies. You spent a lot of time um, covering president Trump who couldn't be handled, couldn't be packaged, couldn't be managed, did not really stick to did, talking. Did, did points. not know what a talking um, point was. No, no, no. Um, and I think for the press, he was so fascinating because he kind of just disrupted everything. I mean, including taking his message directly to the people on formats like Twitter, where he felt a way around traditional media that probably made the difference in him winning in 2016. You know, I said when I covered his 2016 campaign that if he becomes president, being the White House correspondent will be the most fascinating job on the planet. <laughs> and it, it certainly was. I mean, it was crazy. It was like being in a tornado in the eye of a hurricane. 365 was- days a year. It was 18 hours a day, 365 days a year. Some of those foreign trips were just off the wall. And the whole thing was <laughs> chaotic, but it was fascinating at the same time. And, you know, some people say it was dangerous as well. And, and, but, but I'll tell you, just as a journalistic exercise, following that administration was like nothing I've ever done mm-hmm. before. And I've been to several hot war zones. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> That's saying you. something. We'll have more Live in the Bream in a moment. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Okay, so let me go back a few um, a few paces because I'm always fascinated. And I'm sure you get asked about this a lot too about your early start and some of your early years working in. You talked about radio starting there, so you had this music background and you worked in um, you know entertainment media, music media, music videos, that whole world. Um, tell me what that was like, and did you see that path leading to you to these places like you said, war zones in the White House? Well, that wasn't the initial track. The initial track was when I, when I, I left college mm-hmm. to try to pursue my dream. Uh, I wanted to become a disc jockey because I grew up in the 1970s with Top 40 radio. And mm-hmm. thought, wouldn't it be great to be a Top 40 disc jockey? So I went around to all these little radio stations within about a 200-mile radius of where I lived. And they said, well, we don't have any openings for disc jockeys, but we've got openings for people to read the news. And so that's how I started, was reading the news. And I kept on trying to trying to work my way into being a disc jockey. I did a country music show on a very small radio station for a number of months. But then I eventually did become a disc jockey at Canada's biggest rock radio station uh, back in the 1970s, which was 1050 Chum, which was like um, WLS in Chicago mm-hmm. or WABC in New York, same type of, of you know, big top 10 format. 
And then I got tired of working all nights and crazy shifts. And so I said, do you have anything else? And they said, well, we just bought a television station <laughs> and they're trying to launch this music program. So I went and I talked to the producer of the music program and he laid it out as, well, it's going to be a kind of a Rolling Stone magazine for TV. So we started that in 1979. It was called The New Music. And that was just at the, at the very beginning of the new wave of music coming in from England. Mm -hmm. uh, the Clash, the Buzzcocks, U2, the Police, um, all of these, Spandau Ballet, all of these, Echo and the Bunnymen, all of these bands that were coming over, uh, which were getting uh, huge uh, audiences in Canada and the United States. And so I interviewed these people before they were anybody. I yeah. saw the police played a, about 20 people at a very small club oh my goodness. in, in, in uh, Toronto. Then they came back and they played to 200 people. And then they came back <laughs> after that and played to 100,000. I saw you 2 play to 400 people at a small uh, theater venue in New York. So it was fascinating to be involved in that. And, and then that, of course, uh, preceded by about two years, the advent of MTV in the United States. And Canada wanted to have, have its own homegrown version of MTV. So after about three or four years of doing this music program, we applied to the governing body to get a license for a cable music channel, uh, which eventually came out in the fall of 1984. It was called Much Music, which is scrambling the letters of Chum, which was the parent company. Mm -hmm. And I became one of the first two video jockeys on, on that station. And, and Shannon, that, that whole ride, from 1979 to when did I bail out? 80, early 87 was was fascinating. I had mm -hmm. the time of my life. I was I in my early, I was in my early 20s, and I was meeting all these rock stars, going to all of these shows, traveling around the world uh, to see them. I went to the Rock and Rio Festival. I went to the US Festival. I went to Reggae Sunsplash two or three times. I went to Bob Marley's funeral oh in Jamaica. <laughs> I mean, it was it was fascinating. But of course, when, when I saw the writing on the wall, I thought, you know, this is a young person's game and I'm not going to do this for the rest of my life. So at the ripe old age of 27, I went to the, uh, the uh, station manager or the guy that owned the station, really, and said, look, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Uh, I want to get back into news. And he said, no problem. You know, you've done uh, I said, oh, you've, you've given us a lot of help in launching all of this. Uh, the work was terrific on the other projects. So we'll make you the anchor of the 10 o'clock news. <laughs> so I just got thrown right, right back into it. Now, a lot of people said, well, wait a second, you were in entertainment and you were a disc jockey and you were a video jockey. How do you think you have any credibility doing news? So I just said, damn the torpedoes. I'm not going to let the naysayers get me down. I love uh, and I just put my nose to the grindstone and kept going. And every once in a while, you look at my Twitter feed, people say, oh, he was a VJ in Toronto. <laughs> what does he like, know in Canada? What does he know? And I'm like, yeah, that was one of the best times of my life. We created something out of right. whole cloth. It was amazing. The country loved it. And we left a legacy behind that very few people could accomplish mm -hmm. the, the team that we had. So I'm very proud of what happened. So anybody out there, who tries to use that to knock me, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of everything that we did. So 
Try not going to work. And I love that whole idea of just like you said, um, having the naysayers who are like, you're not cut out for this, or you're not the appropriate person for this. And just saying, I'm going to go 100% in this direction um, to prove people wrong. I think sometimes the challenges to us actually make us more motivated, um, more, you know, for me, it made me more realistic about, all right, where can I improve? Where's their criticism valid so that I can get better and develop my skills and prove them wrong in the long run. So, um, yeah. I think sometimes you know, those people add fuel to our fire. I don't really think that I was out to prove anybody wrong. I think I was out to prove myself right. Right. Because I, I don't, and I'm sure you don't do this either. I don't do things to please other people. Mm-hmm. I do things because I think that they're the right thing to do. And I don't do things because I think they're the wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm probably guilty of too much self-reflection. And I'm sure <laughs> you're sure you probably share that. Yes, that, I do. <laughs> that, that, that minor character flaw as well. So I'll beat myself up worse than anybody could if I do something that I don't mm-hmm. think was the right thing to do, or if I've made a mistake, mm-hmm. or done something that I shouldn't have done. Uh, so I don't need anybody on the outside beating me up because mm-hmm. I'll do that. But, but I when I so with you on that, <laughs> but this was just something that I wanted to do. And I really didn't care what people were saying about it. And um, I, I think to a large degree, I, it was pretty successful. So. Yeah. And listen, you ended up in the Canadian broadcast hall of fame. I got to ask you what that honor felt like. It was really interesting because this was attached to Canadian music week. So um, they inducted me into the uh, Canadian Broadcast Hall of Fame for two things, for my work in, in music and music television and for my work in, in news as well. So it was really fascinating for those two worlds to come together uh, in, that, in that one moment. And my best friend for forever, Gil Moore, who was the drummer uh, from the famous Canadian rock band Triumph, uh, gave the tribute uh, to me, as well as Denise Donlan, who was uh, working with the Music Channel uh, then. And so it was two very close, very good friends who were saying all these wonderful things about me. And I was mm-hmm. sitting there at my table saying, uh, did they make this stuff up? <laughs> How could they be saying wonderful things about me? But it was, it, was a, it was really a lovely ceremony, and I'm very thankful for it. Yeah. When you have someone else look objectively at your body of work, sometimes it is you're like pinching yourself a little bit like, oh my goodness, they make me sound so impressive. Like I've done some stuff. So yeah, but I know you me clearly know, had know, done some stuff. I, but I know me and I know I'm not that impressive. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will take exception. Uh, that is hashtag fake news. Okay, last question I got to ask you. Well, let me ask you two quickly. Who are your favorite musical influences because of all the people that you've met and that you covered? It, it can be like a personal connection or it can just be the music that you like. You know, I, because I was very close to them, you know, Tr- Triumph uh, is, a, is a band that I really appreciated. Uh, Gilmore, the drummer, is the godfather of our twins. Uh, Rick, Rick Emmett was a good friend, Mike Levine as, as well. And I always appreciated what those guys did. I was also, uh, I'm also uh, friends with Alex Lifeson from Rush. So I, mm-hmm. you know, growing up in Canada, everybody was a Rush fan. So mm-hmm. I really appreciated them. Led Zeppelin, of course, ACDC, The Beatles, uh, some good blues artists like Howlin' Wolf, B.B. King. You know, my, my influences sort of run the gamut. I, I never became uh, really involved in the music industry because I never really had the talent to do it, though I probably would have loved to have done that as mm-hmm. well. So I'll pick up a guitar 
every once in a while and I'll sit in with the band. I remember uh, my wife and I, a couple of friends went to Madam's organ in uh, Adams oh, Morgan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there was a band that was playing. There. It was a great blues band uh, from uh, Toledo. And the lead guitarist and, and singer recognized me as we were walking in. He came up to the table and goes, Hey man, we got to get, get, get you to come up and sing a song with uh-huh. us. And I said, well, I can't sing. He says, well, what else can you do? And Kira, my wife, said, well, he plays guitar. (laughs) (laughs) So there I am up on stage, shaking like a leaf, feeling like a person with his pants pulled down, uh, Mm. hoping just not to make a fool of himself uh, (laughs) playing guitar with with this group. How cool. I know that, you know, former Senator Scott Brown does it a lot. He sits in with Cheap Cheap Trick and some other people. I, I, I played Limelight in a sound check with Rush in Atlanta. That was a lot of fun. You know, I would have loved to have been a rock star, but again, the only thing that kept me from doing it was talent. <laughs> so, so Listen, you I, definitely, lo- I love every once in a while just to get a little taste. Of it. Yeah. I mean, it's awesome. And you've definitely made the most of all the talents you do have. We all have different things. Um, so last question then, what do you do for fun away from news, um, things that kind of feed you and, and help you to decompress and all of those things? Well, I, st- I still love playing guitar. And uh, my wife and kids will uh, tell you that I probably spend as much time doing that or with a guitar in my hand as I do anything else. Uh, Our son is a great drummer. Uh, Our daughter is, is, uh, she sings. They're both in the School of Rock Performance Program. We get together and play every once in a while. So that's something that I really love to do. Mm -hmm. And then I'm really involved with kids' sports as well. And I go to every one of their games. I go to every one of their practices. Uh, my son's got a tryout tonight in an hour. My daughter's Ooh. got a clinic in an hour in the 96 degree heat. Ooh. So I'll, I'll be at both of those. And they're both on travel lacrosse teams. So we spend a lot of our time up in Montgomery County, Maryland, mm-hmm. which really is the, the, uh, the hot seat for lacrosse in, in this area. Sure uh, and, you know, just enjoy time with family. That's really what I love to do. And, and of course, uh, we have a small wakeboard boat. And to take the kids out tubing and wakeboarding on the weekends. We have a lot of fun doing that as well. So ladies and gentlemen, John Roberts is not sitting around taking naps. The man is busy. He's got a lot of talents, a lot of interests. And I am really glad that he is a colleague as well. Coinco of America reports, um, you know, travel you know, the world, like I said, White House correspondent, he's done it all. That's, that's, that's the one thing that I don't like to do is sit around. I always, <laughs> I always like to be moving, doing something. I'm not a big fan. I'm not a big fan of slouching on the couch. Well, I thank you for sitting still long enough to talk to us on this week's Live in the Bream. Um, John, I hope that we will be working together again soon. In the meantime, and, and, and can I say, and can I say just, you know, in, 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 in uh, response to what you said about that, that uh, moment in Tampa, I am so honored. I am so honored to have you as a colleague. You do amazing work. Congratulations on the books that you've put out. You, you really are a spectacular colleague. And I'm also very honored to be able to call you friend. Well, thank you, John. And thank you for making time for us on Living the Bream. Hope to see you in person very soon. Of course. Thanks, Shannon.
I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.